following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Lord, your love to your own is truly amazing. I pray today that you would cause us to plumb its depths even further. That you would give us strength to comprehend with with all of the saints how wide and deep and vast is your love to us. Lord, today I, I pray, would you, would you help our hearts as we look into your word? We, we need your help. We, we need your help. I, the truths that we are going to look at today are so precious. They're so freeing. But... Our hearts resist them. Our hearts are prone to to look at ourselves and and, and take our eyes off of your love and your amazing grace. To look at our circumstances and our, our weak strength and to doubt. And we doubt ourselves and then we turn that doubt upon you. So, Lord, I pray your grace is truly amazing. And I pray today that you would that you would give us grace that we need. To truly glorify you. Pray that your word would would come and Holy Spirit, you would cause it to be food for us and enablement for us to be useful, to be useful in the enlargement of your kingdom. Oh, Lord, may may your will be done. May your will be done right now. May your will be done in my family and every home represented here in this body, in this church family. Would your will be done? Would you cause us to endure in your will? Would you cause us to rejoice in your will? Would you cause us to surrender to your will, to embrace your will, to accept your will, and to wait upon your will when it will finally be done and we will see you face to face. So, Father, bless your children with grace now, I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, and please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. We're going to be spending most of our time this morning in the first half of Matthew 11. But uh, before we get there, we're going to look a little bit at Matthew 10. I'm going to start reading uh, from Matthew 10, verse 34. 
I'm going to read through chapter 11, verse 19. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Speaking to his disciples. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, John the Baptist that is, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Our questions reveal a lot about us. I remember the story of a missionary who came back and made a report at our 
our old church in Colorado Springs. He had been in Papua New Guinea ministering to an unreached tribe. And he and his team acted out the Bible from Genesis onward for this tribe, day after day, week after week, visually representing the Bible to this people, to this unreached people. All the way through the law, all the way through the prophets to Jesus. And they acted out the life of Jesus and portrayed him from his birth to his cross. And the, 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 the tribe, they, they loved Jesus. They loved him. And they were heartbroken when they heard that he had died. And so the next day, they all assembled because the missionaries said, we have, we have one more part of the story. So they all assembled and the missionaries came and enacted out the resurrection for them and, and, and told them that he is not dead, that he lives and that he reigns. And they rejoiced. Oh, they were, they were relieved. Overflowing joy. But then the next question startled the missionaries. Can you guess what it was? The next question was, is that it? <laughs> is, is, is that the story? I mean, we love Jesus, no disrespect, but is that it? Is that it? And we often ask ourselves the same questions. Is this it? Lord, I, I, I praise you for, uh, for what you have done for me. I, I praise you for your grace. But, but, but this, this, this thing, is this it? This situation, my life, is this it? Does that have anything to do with this here? If God is really God, then why doesn't he? In the passage before us this morning, we will find our own questions and our own frustrations revealed. I found my own revealed in this passage. Our own frustrations and our own questions. And Jesus will also graciously give us the way of escape out of those questions, out of those frustrations. Not every question. The way of escape out of our doubts. Not every doubt. But out of our doubts. He will graciously give us the way of escape. The truth. The question will not be, is there truth here? The truth is pretty clear in this text. The real question that Jesus will ask us is, are we willing to accept it? Do we have ears to hear? Will we accept it? So before we get there, I just want to make a few observations from chapter 10. Jesus is, is being honest with his disciples. He's telling them about how things really are in this world. The way things really work. He's being loving to them by being honest. Discipleship is hard. <laughs> the road is not easy. It's not all blue sky and roses and the yellow brick road. Discipleship is hard. But the essential role of a disciple, Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 21, is to acknowledge him before people. It's not that complicated, is it? To acknowledge Christ before people. But it's not always easy. <laughs> Not only that, it is to take up our cross and lose our lives in order to find them. Verse 38. We lose our lives in order to gain them. That's the essential role of a disciple. That's what a disciple does. Easy to understand, not so easy to do. 
And he says that the disciples will be hated. They, that they can know, though, that he was hated first. And, and that this hatred and suffering and death that Jesus experienced was his very path to life. And they can know that at the end of the, all times, God will bring justice. And everyone will see that justice is being done. But before justice comes, there will be conflict. There will be trouble. Jesus came with the sword. He came to divide before he came to unite all things in himself. Thank God that he is the blessed controller of all things. And in every circumstance, he is pursuing his good. He is pursuing our good. His good is his glory. And our good is bound up in his glory. And despite the hatred, we can also rest assured that God's purposes will not be thwarted, that there will be some people who will receive us, who will receive our message. And when they receive us and they receive our message, they will be receiving God himself. God's purposes will not be thwarted. Neither will his rewards. The rewards of the kingdom are not reserved just for the prophets, the super spiritual ones, but those who receive their message. Those who receive the prophets will receive the prophets' rewards. God is coming and he is bringing his reward with him. So that's a crash course on being a disciple of Jesus Christ, chapter 10. So the, the question is not, do, do we know this stuff? Most of us do. We, we know this stuff. But the question is, are we willing to accept them? Do we have ears to hear? So now we turn to Matthew 11. A somewhat shocking chapter. John doubts. John is doubting Jesus. John the Baptist, the forerunner and messenger of the Messiah. John, born around the same time as Jesus, who preached in the desert of repentance from sins to God, who pointed people to Jesus, who said, this is the one, that John. This John also denounced Herod. Herod, who took... Herod's brother's wife to be his own. And John denounced him for it. And Herod and Herodias put him in prison. That's where we find John when we meet him here in Matthew 11. So it's from prison that he sends this shocking question to Jesus. John had doubts. Are you really the Christ? Are you it or should we keep looking? Is essentially his question. It has struck some as inconceivable over the centuries that John the Baptist would express such plain doubt. But this is the plain meaning of the text, and I hope you'll see that it fits perfectly with the, with the larger context and the, the flow of the text here. John had been in prison for around a year by this time. And even worse, Herod, maybe out of spite, put John in prison in the desert in the very place where he previously would roam freely. And now all he can do is look out at the desert from his prison cell. And not only that, but it was hot, stiflingly hot. So John was exhausted, most likely. John was human. He was exhausted from his uh, dramatic ministry and pointing to Jesus, but he was also probably exhausted from his imprisonment. But the primary reason that John is doubting Christ um, is found in John's own preaching about Jesus. In, in Matthew 3, 
verse 12, John preached this. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. <laughs> He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about this is this is what the Messiah will do when he comes. So John is essentially asking Jesus, where's the fork? Where's the threshing floor? Where's the gathering and the burning? John sees everything else in Jesus that, 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 that points to Jesus being the Messiah except this one thing, justice. Where's the justice? <clears throat> Look, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why am I the one burning up here? What's going on? If you really are the Christ, then why can you identify with John's question? Can you identify a bit with his doubt, with his questioning here? If this Christianity thing is really all it's cracked up to be, then why this job, this thing, this trial? Why does this person hate me? Why am I being punished like this? Well, Jesus replies in verse four, not with condemnation and, and not to not to get John into compliance, not to unembarrass John. But with the word of God from several chapters from the prophet of, I, of Isaiah, especially chapters 35 and 61 of Isaiah. The passage in Isaiah 61 specifically speaks of Messiah and what Messiah will come or what, what he will do when he comes. Jesus is saying that the, the Isaiah prophecy is being fulfilled in his ministry. Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. Yes. But there is an even more subtle truth in Jesus' response. Because in each of the passages that Jesus quotes, there is talk of vengeance, of judgment, of God coming in judgment. And Jesus very astutely very specifically leaves them out of every quote. Why? Well, he's communicating to John very subtly. Yes, it is coming. It will come, but not yet. Not yet. John is still on the Old Testament side of the cross. That, that, that's his problem. That's his fundamental problem. He's still in the, in the Old Covenant. He's the last in a long line of prophets prophets he can't see the cross in the empty tomb like matthew could and like you and i could he doesn't know that there will be a delay a, a, a period between christ's appearing and his final judgment he doesn't know that there's a gap in this respect he's like i said like every other old testament prophet they could see the hills in the distance but they couldn't perceive the valley in between So in a gentle encouragement to John, in response to John's doubt, and, and, and this is crucial, Jesus says, here are the facts of the gospel at, at this point in redemption history. Here are the facts of the gospel. Here they are. Go ahead. Trace it down and you will see. Trace it down, John. Here they are. I am he. And th this is a beautiful piece, a beautiful truth about Christianity this is an open book religion. 
We are an open book. Our, our Lord himself didn't say, shh, John, shut up. Quiet about your questioning. To John's doubt, he confidently points him to the gospel and freely allows him to trace it down. To trace it down. Doubt can be a good thing. It can lead us to the truth. It can lead you to the truth. He knows that John will find all the threads of prophecy find their ending in Jesus. They're all tied up there in him. So in a gentle encouragement to John, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse six, blessed is the one who is not put off or or offended into quitting because of how I work in my kingdom. Blessed is the one who does not turn away frustrated by how my kingdom is being played out. But who accepts my purposes. But then Jesus turns to the crowds to defend John. If John doubts, is he really so great? That he defends John in order to tell them and us where our true significance as people comes from. So Jesus asks them these wry, ironic questions beginning in verse 7. I, I have to say, I love this. Jesus has a pitch perfect sense of humor. <laughs> pitch perfect. So he says, beginning in verse 7, what did you go out to see in the desert? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, a flake? Someone who blows on the winds of other people's opinions? No, no, that's, that's someone else. Herod. <laughs> so what did you go out to, into the desert to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Some pretentious, preening, uh, effeminate, Trust baby who went out and slummed in the desert with you people and then went back to his mansion to sleep at night? Is that, is, that, is that what you went out to see in the desert? No. No. Those who would have seen John and knew him would have laughed and gotten the point. No, 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 no. no. Don't doubt John because of John's doubt. John was a man's man. So what did you go out to see, Jesus asks? Yes, a prophet And John was the last in a long line of prophets. We see this in verse 13. But John was special. John is the Elijah who was prophesied about. John is the Elijah who was promised in the last book of the Old Testament who would come and point to the Messiah. That's the quote in verse 10. All the other Old Testament prophets pointed to Christ, but they all did it from a distance. But John, John could say, there he is. I'm I'm pointing to him right now. That's him. Go, go to him. Follow him. Trust him. John was special. He could literally point to the Christ. So on the one hand, John is a man's man. Do not doubt John because of John's doubt. On the other hand, what makes John truly great Jesus is saying what makes John truly great was that he could point clearly to the Messiah. That's what established his greatness. It was not John himself. John's greatness was found in the one that he could clearly point to. John's greatness was found in his magnificent privilege and ability to point clearly to the king of the world. The savior of all mankind. That's what made John great. But Jesus is saying, Jesus follows this up with an amazing statement. Shocking. 
The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So how could this be? And the only answer that makes sense is that what made John great is what makes the least in the kingdom great. The most flaky, preening, softy of the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because there's something about this new kingdom that's dawned that allows us to point to Christ even more clearly than John ever could. More clearly than there he is, right there. What is that? It's the gospel. The gospel. To be on this side of the cross means that whoever has the gospel... Whoever is in this kingdom is greater than John ever was because this person can point clearly to the king of this kingdom more clearly than John ever could. Oh, if, if, if only I could, if only Christ could come down right now and people could actually see him in this valley and I could point to him physically, then people would believe. No, they wouldn't. No, they won't. Only the gospel has the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Amazing to think about. So the next verse is a difficult one because it can be rendered either the kingdom has been coming forcefully or violently, or it can be rendered the kingdom has suffered violence. And I read it straight earlier the way the the ESV renders it here. But I'm... I'm convinced that the way that this should be rendered based on the normal use of the original words, based on the larger context and the flow of thought and the context of the individual verses before and after this verse, that it should be rendered that the kingdom has been coming violently. The kingdom has been coming forcefully. No scratch forcefully. Just leave violently there. That's that'll do. Not not like a crusade, not not forcefully in the sense of, of, of one person, one Christian forcing another at knife point to believe. But in the sense of since the days of John the Baptist, which overlapped completely with Jesus, since the days of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been breaking in and it has been violently dislodging the forces of darkness. Jesus has been ejecting demons, curing blindness, stopping deafness. Jesus has been has been ejecting the forces, the forces of darkness. He has been pushing back the darkness. He has been violently making war against the old dominion of sin and death. Which makes perfect sense in the context, which I also think then makes better sense of the second half of the phrase, because the violent take the kingdom by force. In other words, As Jesus has come and made war against this old dominion, against the darkness, the darkness has not received it sitting down. The darkness has fought back. And John is example number one of this. Jesus said he came not with peace, but with a sword. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom by first causing enmity in families, inviting hatred upon himself and eventually killing death itself. The kingdom's been coming violently, not against people, but against this old dominion of sin and death. And the darkness is not going to take it lying down. 
John is in prison not because of John, but because of the realities of war. But that's not the only kind of opposition that we'll see in these chapters, chapters 11, 12, and 13. It's not the only kind of opposition that we see. It's not the only kind of opposition that we see out there and in here. It comes from religious leaders. It comes from people who really want prosperity from Jesus. Who really want Jesus to bring about political change, cultural change, social change. But they don't want to have anything to do with his righteousness. The darkness resists the light in many ways. Some forcefully, some right out there in the open like Herod imprisoning John, John and some much more subtly. So in verse 13, all the prophets have been looking forward and, and pointing to this day, the, the, the days of John the Baptist in which the, the kingdom would violently break in and make war. So the question is, do we have ears to hear Can we accept what Jesus is saying? Jesus himself asks us. Now, a word about doubt. Doubt is not unbelief. It's somewhere between belief and unbelief. Doubt can be quite useful. It can lead us to the truth if we're willing to accept the truth. But doubt can drive us to become disappointed with God, frustrated even, when we misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. It can even cause us to fall away, to give up. It can do that. Sometimes it comes when we face a great trial and it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And the the word from the doctor is that it's only going to get worse. Something doesn't compute here. Where's the joy? Where's the abundant life? Or perhaps it's the the, the shock of things actually getting worse as as you increase your resolve to follow Christ. This isn't getting better. Isn't this supposed to get better? Aren't my kids supposed to behave better as I seek to, to, to drive the, the, the dark foolishness out of them? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Why is this getting worse? Why am I alienated from my own family? Why do they hate me? If you are God, why is this going on? If you are the Messiah, why are you not fixing this problem of marriage crumbling in our country. Why did you not stop him from doing this to me? Why this dreary job? Why these bars? Why this heat? Why am I forced to wait? If you are, why? God answers us graciously, sometimes forcefully, like Job. Sometimes gently like John. But either way, he he answers us with the truth that we need to hear. He answers us with truth. And, and in light of that truth, you and I, we, we have some work to do. Because we, we need to take this truth that he gives us, the reality of the kingdom, and then we need to compare it to our own presuppositions about what we think God should be up to. And we need to compare. And where our own presuppositions don't match up, we need to let them go. And we need to align our own thoughts with God's. So Jesus Christ really is the the king of all. He, he proved it with his life and with his cross and with his empty tomb. And lastly, with his ascension to heaven, he is the king of all. So with the rest of our time this morning, I, I want to work off of this big point that. True discipleship leads 
to true blessing. True discipleship leads to true blessing, but requires accepting the preeminence of King Jesus in his kingdom. True discipleship leads to true blessing, but requires accepting the preeminence of King Jesus in his kingdom. Our problem is not misunderstanding the beginning, usually. And it's actually not misunderstanding the end. I mean, I know there's parts of Revelation that maybe you don't understand. But I think most of us get it. Jesus wins. (laughs) And by faith, we win with him. That's pretty clear. I think so often, so often, the part of God's kingdom that we misunderstand is the middle. We don't understand, and, and, and it's partially because of misunderstanding, but oftentimes it's because we refuse to accept his own purposes for his kingdom. So the, the first point that I, wanna, I want us to hang our thinking on this morning is this, that, that blessing comes to disciples who accept and trust Jesus' wartime purposes for his kingdom. Blessing comes to disciples who accept and trust King Jesus' wartime purposes for his kingdom. This is the subtle challenge of Jesus in verse 6. John and, and you and I, we, we first again need to think about what we think God should be doing. What we think God should be up to in his kingdom. God should, must save my children If I'm good, God should bless me with increased wealth. Trusting in Christ means freedom from grave illness and long life. If only I follow God's commandments, then the people around me will treat me okay. God's purpose is to make me happier. God should be restoring our social and cultural values in this country. We have all kinds of presuppositions that we work upon all the time. So often our problem is not what we do, but the truths that we are hanging our actions upon in the first place. And they're there and we don't even know it. We don't even know it. But are these and other presuppositions true? So let me ask you, what do you assume God should be doing in your life? What do you assume that God should be up to in this world, in this city, in this church? What have you determined that the king should be up to in his kingdom? A a good place to start looking for this is is in the places where God has disappointed you. Where you you feel like God has disappointed you. And And a good place to find those, good rocks to look under are the places where you've stopped praying. Where, where have you stopped praying in your life? I suspect that there is a place where God has disappointed you. And perhaps, perhaps God has disappointed you and frustrated you because you were operating upon presuppositions that were wrong, that were not in line with God's own purposes for His kingdom. I... I say this to you, not to be hard, but to, but to free you, to, to free you from these, these false presuppositions that we all carry like viruses. They're viral. So John's story before us today is, to, is, is clear. To, to, to evaluate what we presuppose, presupposed should be God's purposes in his kingdom. 
And we need to repent of those. We need to repent of them. We need to take those presuppositions and line them up with God's word and drop out what doesn't line up. We need to repent. And not only, not only do we need to let those presuppositions go, but we need to trust God with his own purposes. His own purposes. That this is a time of war. And sometimes in war, things do get better, but sometimes they get worse before they get better. And the, the darkness will bite and fight back. It will. That is not to say that we don't hold on to the end and we don't hold on to the beginning. We do. But we must also accept his purposes for the middle. Easier said than done. But the truth is that you and I were reborn into a kingdom that is both at war and at work to rebuild. Christ is making war and he is making war to redeem people from slavery. To free people from their slavery to sin and death. That's the picture of Isaiah 61 that Jesus has quoted to John. And praise God that he has held off his justice in mercy so that he could save you and I. Praise his name. Praise his name that he is making war against the darkness. And that he chose you. And that he died for you. And then he pulled you out of the darkness. Praise his name. This, this truth should, should define us and give our lives purpose. It should define us and, 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 and give, us, give us grace to joyfully line up our purposes with his. Praise his name. Even though it might get worse before it gets better. So we do need to look back. We, we, we do need to look back and, and see all the ways, all, how all the promises that weave themselves through the Old Testament find their terminus in Christ. And we, and we need to take that, that truth and we need to pull it forward into today. And we need to say, oh yes, look how faithful, look how true to His promises He has been. The promised Davidic King has come, yes, And we need to look forward to the promises of his soon return, that he will bring justice, that he will wipe the threshing floor clean. And we need to pull that back to today as well. We live in today by holding on to the cross and the empty tomb and by holding on to his soon return. That's how we live in today. Easier said than done. We need each other in this. John needed Jesus to tell him these things. And good on John for speaking up. Good on John for speaking up and voicing his doubts, though it was embarrassing. Good on him. So the call today is to take the faith that we have about a sacrifice and and pull it forward and take these truths about the future and pull them back. We can trust him. We can trust him even when the when the darkness responds to violence with violence. It also means that we can do two things at the same time that seem contradictory. We can wait and we can engage. We can wait for his soon return. We can wait because we can trust in his purposes that they are good and true, though at the moment we can't see how it all works out. We can wait. And while we wait, we can engage We can engage in his purposes. 
His purpose to make war. And how do we make war? We don't make war through cultural change on its face. We don't make war by making other people come into compliance with 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 a set of rules that, that come from Christianity. We make war by clearly communicating Christ through his gospel. By proclaiming the gospel. That's how we make war. That's how we engage. So I, I ask you again, do you trust him? Do you trust him? What presuppositions about him do you, do you need to surrender today? Do you just need to leave behind? And, and where you need to pray to him for grace to leave them behind. And will you pick up his purposes and make them your own? Will you trust him? And will you engage? Well, I, I find, I don't know about you, but, but I find that the biggest obstacle to faith, to trusting him, is me. <laughs> is myself. And this leads us to our second point. Our only true significance and lasting joy are found in pointing the world to Christ. I mean, that's, that's one of these things where you, you get up here and, you, and you're preaching and you think, I, I can't even believe I just said that. that I, I just need to stop and, and just revel in that for a moment and let it sink in. Our only true significance as people, as human beings, and our only lasting joy is found in pointing the world to Christ. This comes from verse 11. John is the greatest of men, but because he alone could point to the Messiah with his very finger and say, there he is. And yet Jesus says anyone who enters the kingdom of heaven is even greater than John because they have the ability to point to Jesus even more clearly, even more unambiguously than John could. But what's what's more clear than than pointing to a physical face with a physical finger, the gospel in the gospel, we we tell of the things that actually accomplish salvation for mankind in the gospel. We actually tell the story of the cross of a, of a savior, of a God becoming man and willfully going to the cross kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane and sweating as though, as though drops of blood and then and then looking over it. And people like you and me sleeping, sleeping and then choosing, yes, I will go to the cross. I will go for them, for me. We can tell the story of the cross of him taking taking our the, the wrath that we deserved upon himself right there. And we can talk about him actually dying being really dead and being really raised from the dead and how we can too walk in newness of life because he is reborn, because he is, excuse me, resurrected. <clears throat> oh, we, we live in the most privileged point in history, in salvation history, this side of the cross, because we can tell the good news. Every other prophet, do you understand? You are greater than Abraham. You are greater than David. You are greater than John. Why? Not because of you. Because you can point to the Messiah ever more clearly than any of those people ever could. Amazing. The gospel is amazing. Where am I? So, so you ask, yeah, 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 okay, okay. That, that, that sounds great for a church service, but, but how is, is that pointing to Christ? How does that really make me great? 
How does that actually define my significance as a person? And it's because Christ is the only way into the kingdom and joy for all eternity. He is the only truth by which you were saved and by which anyone could be saved. He's the only way that anyone escapes eternal damnation. That truth. He's the only source of life that you are looking for, that everyone is looking for. That we look for in food, sex, money, career. He's the only source of life. Oh, he, he is the hope of the world. The gift is so great, it defines the bearer. Do you, do you get that? The, the gift is so great, so precious, so important, it defines the bearer. <coughs> Excuse me. It should define our identity. It defines our significance in the cosmos. I love the old story of the college professor tells of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the people are, are waving and cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all the, 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 the crowds and the throngs and the celebration and the welcome and the, the exultation and the joy. And the college professor said, wouldn't it be something if that donkey thought all that was for him? And yet the donkey was very important because of what he was bearing. His significance was defined by what he was bearing. So, Pastor Steve often says that we are a most privileged people, and he's right. Because of Christ, because of his grace, for his, his mercy in saving us and giving us this awesome privilege at placing us in this point in salvation history to be able to point to Him more clearly than anyone ever could. You have that, Christian, in the Gospel. We are no longer great in and of ourselves. We are no longer great in and of ourselves. We are great because the news we carry is great. We are great only on the basis of pointing to the only person in the universe who is truly great, who is awesome. To use that trampled word. He is awesome. So this should put to rest our own preening for attention and our, our cheap jockeying for position in church and among this body. It means that, brother and sister, you, you are free this is such good news. You are free to stop seeking to establish your own greatness. Wonderful. Because so many of us churn our wheels and spend our lives doing that. Why? For a Christian, for, for an, an unbeliever, it makes sense. But for a Christian, it's insane. Why? It means that we are no longer defined by our strength or our weaknesses, by our wins or our losses, by our faith or our doubt. Our significance is found in our ability to point to Christ with the gospel of Christ. It means we, we no longer need to try to find significance in what other people think of us. It means we, you and I are free. You, 
You are free tomorrow morning. If you are going to work, to, or maybe today, if you go to, whenever, the next time you go to work, you are free to go to work happy in the Lord instead of exercising vain ambition in your work. You're free. This truth should take a wrecking ball to, to finding our significance in our own intelligence and our theology and our giftings or our looks. We have real freedom. It means we can stop looking for, for significance in our success as parents or our success as a spouse. Or even how many people you brought into your church on your mission. Our significance is found not in what we do, but in the clarity with which we can point to the king on this side of the cross. As the, the writer Paul Tripp puts it, if we do not find our significance in pointing to Christ, if, if we do not find our identity as a child of God, we will be continually shopping for it elsewhere. We will be people who are continually shopping for an identity and significance and, and all these other things, many of them good, but still frustrating and futile. So let me ask you, where, where do you go shopping for an identity? Where, where do you go shopping for significance? I, I have to tell you that I, I have rejoiced over these truths lately. It's part of the reason why I'm preaching this today, because I, I have found uh, in myself a very subtle but very real temptation to find my significance in being a good pastor. But the ironic thing and the deeply deceptive thing about that is when I seek to find my identity in being a good minister of the gospel, I've forgotten the gospel. <laughs> I've forgotten what the gospel is about. I've forgotten what his kingdom is about. So where do you go shopping? A good place to look is in the areas of your life where you feel frustrated it may be that you're shopping for an identity there, for significance there. Where do you feel frustrated? Where do you feel continual, a continual spiral of futility? Maybe you're trying to find your identity there in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your money, or lack thereof. But we're free to find our significance in pointing to Christ. But, but, okay, you say, I, I, I get what you're saying, but, but I, if I'm honest with myself, I am a self-machine. As I heard one pastor put it once, I love me some me. <laughs> how, how, do, how do I step out of that? How, how, do I, how do I do that? And on the one hand, we need to stop insisting that God dance to our tunes. That God, we need to stop insisting that God would dance to our, our dance steps. But more than that, we need to feast upon Christ. I, I know of no other way to put it. The way of escape is to feast upon Christ. To feast upon what He has done for you. To revel in what He has done for you and what He will do for you. And 
to rejoice in the purposes that he has for his kingdom today. Because his purposes resulted in you being in his kingdom. Rejoice in Christ. Feast upon Christ. Find others in this church who can help you feast upon Christ. Tell them, feed me, brother, sister. Feed me, remind me, tell me the story again. Feast upon Christ. By faith. When we, when we go to gospel community and, and, and we sit down and we, and we say to ourselves, well, I guess I need to say something about church today. Maybe we need to stop saying, oh, didn't Steve preach such a good sermon today? And maybe we need to replace that with, oh, what a blessed Savior we have. What an awesome Savior. My life, my, my all is found in Him. My, my King, do what you will. Do what you will because you are good. I don't understand everything, but I put it all at your feet. I lay it all on you. I trust you. I trust you, but help my trust. I believe in you, but help my belief. Go, do, save, make war. And would you do it through me? Would you give me chances this week to share the gospel, to demonstrate you clearly into the darkness? Would you give me that chance? Would you give me that opportunity, that privilege? Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Do you trust him? Will you give up your own purposes and take his own upon yourself? Will you stop insisting upon God dancing to your own dance number? And will you take his yoke upon you? Will you follow him? Will you learn from him? Because I promise you, if you do, you will find that that yoke is easy and the burden is light. You will find a lightness that you have never known before if you've never experienced this. Christian and non-Christian alike, I say, take that yoke. Rest in it. Submit to it. It is light. It is easy. Even in the cell. Even when the ending is not good. It is good. He is worth it. He is faithful. Trust Him. Trust Him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would you would take this um, broken or crooked arrow that has been constructed here of a sermon and shoot it straight. Shoot your the truth of your word into our hearts. Would you give us grace to trust you? Would you give us grace to to give up finding our significance in ourselves? Would you give us grace to lay down those burdens? And to humbly find our all in all in you. Would you help us? Give us grace for this, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.